Welcome to episode 89 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. This year, we're celebrating Halloween by dropping a new episode every Monday in October. If you do the math, that's five episodes. Yeah, but not just regular episodes. We're changing the format of our club meetings just a little bit, and we'll be joined every week by a special guest to discuss a classic horror film of their choice. We won't do our regular features, there won't be a podcast companion, but we'll be providing plenty of content right here and on our respective blogs for Halloween. Did I mention there are five Mondays in October? We want to invite you to celebrate with us by leaving your comments and or feedback. You can do that by joining our Facebook group page or you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 616-649-2582 that's 616-649. Love. And I guess some things will carry over with the regular format. Here to discuss the 1959 William Castle classic House on Haunted Hill is artist Frederick Cooper. Hello. Great Welcome to, to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself to our, our audience? I am Frederick Cooper. I'm an artist. I do almost entirely classic horror related art in the genre relatively nothing outside of the uh, science fiction and horror genre i had a, a super long advertising background and back in 2018 my son talked me into why don't you become a horror artist that's what you've always wanted to do and i said okay let's do that <laughs> i was approaching retirement age anyway and it's like i'll just do what i love to do and that's that's exactly what i'm doing now it's actually grown a bit outside of what I was originally intending. I'm doing movie posters and all sorts of different things right now. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to actually draw the same things I was drawing when I was a five-year-old. It's just magical. I mean, it's, it's, I can't say anything beyond that. In my mind, it brings me back to being a five-year-old and uh, really loving the images I'm trying to emulate. Especially the Frankenstein monster, which uh, I think I've drawn the, the Frankenstein monster more than just about any one figure. And your art is just gorgeous. I follow you on Instagram. I put a little heart on most everything. Oh, thank you. I don't. I'm not an artist. I don't know how you do that, but how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> are you just drawing freehand? Are you looking at an image uh, it, for it, reference? It's a combination of things. I mean, sometimes it's freehand. I use a lot of the techniques I picked up when I was in advertising, which is genuine resemblance to your subject matter is important. I learned the grid technique, which is, uh, you know, essentially, you know, it dates back to Da Vinci. He, he's the one that, you know, would transfer a, a sketch to a wall. You know, that way you get your proportions correct. For the most part, if a resemblance is of the must, it's done with the grid technique. I tried lots of different techniques. But it goes beyond that. It's the color, the shading, the sort of atmosphere that they generate. It's incredible. I just can't, I don't know what to say. They're just gorgeous. Incredibly lifelike. I've got two of your books here. I've I've got several prints on the wall. I was introduced to your work courtesy of Sam Irvin, a marketing machine. Shout out to Sam Irvin. Yes, he's got a uh, new book out. He asked me to be part of that. 
It's a tremendous book. It's amazing the amount of knowledge packed into that one volume. He is amazing. And I know that he wrote the foreword to your book, The Monster, yes, yes, which is, again, kind of how I became aware of your stuff. And, and I'm thankful for that. So thank you, Sam, if you're listening out there. Yes, thanks, Sam. Vincent Price is who I chose for my purchase. And it looks like I'm looking at a, a movie still, which I think there's very few artists that can pull that off convincingly and consistently. We've talked about Mark Maddox on this show, who does, does yes. some great work. But your work is just really, it, it truly is amazing. In fact, you're doing movie posters and stuff. As we record this, you've got an event coming up. But unfortunately, this will be posting after that event. Well, I would just like to thank the people who came out to see me. And I hope they're going to be there. <laughs> I heard the crowds were amazing. And you it was amazing. a ton of stuff. That's right. <laughs> You chose the house on Haunted Hill. What's your history with House on Haunted Hill? Why did you choose that? It's one of my earliest memories, actually, is, is watching the House on Haunted Hill with my brothers. I literally think we've seen, or I have seen at least, that film every Halloween for ever since I was a three-year-old, I think. So what is that, uh, 59 years now? <laughs> which uh, It just brings back so many memories. It's almost like, you know, a cinematic version of Halloween. It's sort of like watching uh, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. It's a fit hand-in-hand, hand, sort of. It's a perfect movie. <laughs> Jeff is a little different. Sometimes he doesn't have those perennial favorites where he watches year after year. Sometimes you take the seasons to experience something new that you haven't seen before. And I think we all admit there's a gazillion movies out there that we haven't seen, and they keep unearthing more Euro horror films that people have forgotten for the last 40 or 50 years. And some of them are good and some of them less so. But <laughs> it's just sort of always been there, which means I must have seen it at some point and it must have ingrained itself into me. I do think it's a perfect Halloween movie. I can definitely see why you guys watch it regularly. I will tell you, I spent Halloween two years ago with my daughter, who's now 32. And She's not particularly following in my footstep. She'll go with me to a horror movie, but, you know, she's not a fan or anything. I'm like, okay, what movie, one movie can we watch? Being a generation difference that she would enjoy, that I know is good and worth her time to watch. And we picked House on Haunted Hill and she did enjoy it. I don't know, a little piece of time of movie history, Vincent Price, uh, William Castle. It's just, it's unique. You know, my kids actually fell in love with this movie for a brief period of time, circa 2000-ish. So uh, my son would have been about six or seven, and Kayla would have been a, a little bit older than that. For some reason, they had this period where black and white was okay. They loved the Three Stooges. I think I had this one on a DVD, and they put it in, or I guess it would have been VHS, whatever the case was. They got just stuck on it. And we're watching it every day, every day, every day. And then that was it. It was like this wonderful window of opportunity where they were loving black and white. And then one day they decided black and white was bad. And that was it. They can't explain why they got connected to it. I asked them just a few years ago, like, why did you guys? And they said, I don't know, this is really good. And why'd you stop watching it? I was like, I don't know. It was black and white and something else new and shiny came along. 
I'm curious, you guys that have seen it so much, do you get new things out of it or is it just like a warm blanket to keep you comfortable? Uh, yeah. Last night's uh, viewing of it, I, I picked up on the Ghost of Mr. Chicken comparison with the, uh, you know, self-playing organ. It's like I, I never even thought about that before. I and mean, obviously somebody was influenced by that scene. Apparently it's a trope that goes way back. Usually things pop up that I, I don't recall before or it's, a lot of it has to do with the script. I mean, they'll, they'll say certain things and they'll have double meanings. And it's like, I think House on Haunted Hill is a very much underrated script. Who was the script writer? It was uh, Rob White. Rob White, yes. Yeah. yeah, he did a fantastic job. Yeah, that dialogue is in the way Vincent Price and his wife, yes, her name right now, that it's just so he's perfect. He's at peak. It's before he kind of slid a little bit into the campy post stuff. The thing I noticed this time, Elijah Cook Jr. Yes. is, you know, one of the guests who has been in the house before. And that reminded me, Richard, when we just talked about Legend of Hell House, you know, Roddy McDowell's character, he had spent time in the house before. And I'm not sure in The Haunting if there's a character that had spent, I know there's a character that had had paranormal experiences. I don't know if she'd been in the house, but that's sort of a, this would be the first in a line of those movies that I mentioned. I don't know if it had any influence, but it's a, a very interesting thing that became a trope in movies and this may have been the first time it was there i had forgotten that yeah it makes you wonder because william castle was this was kind of at the beginning of his reign there in the theaters i mean he had done some work but this was the movie that kind of set him into being the hot thing there for a while right he he was coming up with his gimmicks i want to say wasn't this really one of his first films i we did the william castle episode a while back but i don't have those notes readily available i know that Maybe one movie before this that had a semi-gimmick. Of course, this one was the Emergeo, the skeleton flying across the top of the theater. Basic, still a wonderful gimmick. I know they've recreated that at theaters in, in recent years where they've done some screenings of this, much like the Tingler, of which would come out after this one, I believe, that had the buzzing seats some theater did attempt to do that, but I'm thinking nowadays you couldn't pull that off from insurance purposes because if something did something to somebody and they'd be traumatized and there'd be lawsuits and who knows what would happen. A simpler time, 1959, in many ways. There's a, a lot of inspiration for some of the films that came after that oftentimes don't get talked about. I, I know that supposedly this film inspired Alfred Hitchcock thinking that there was money to be made because this was a big hit. So that supposedly played a part in his decision to move forward with Psycho, which then then influenced William Castle when he was going to do, what was it, Homicidal? Kind of come full circle there, which I thought was interesting. Did either of you ever string a, a plastic skeleton across your living room ceiling when you watched it? <laughs> I did. You ought to do that this year. <laughs> Put it on a slight little slant so it slides down at a certain time. I did. You know, one year when we lived in Wichita, we had a, a slightly bigger porch. I had one of those motion-activated ghosts, right, that, that the arms would move up and down, and kind of it lit up as soon as the motion activated, and you heard all the ghostly sounds. It was a really cool 
thing. And then I had the fog machine on the front porch and actually it terrified several little kids. I was chastised accordingly and <laughs> knock it off. But the effect was really good because we had it right by the steps where they had to walk up. And as soon as they hit the step, the thing would start moving. That's about as close as I've come to doing a Merjo. As recently as this summer in Chicago, didn't they have a screening where they rigged up the skeleton? I think so. I think they've done one recently. Yeah. I actually went to a a showing of it where they did the skeleton. It was just people holding him out on a stick and walking down the aisle, kind of swinging him over us. But still, the thought that counts. According to John Waters, they knew it was coming and they were purposely would try to knock it down (laughs) by throwing the, you know, empty cans and drinks with just ice in it, which is a lot of weight. So that would be really bad. (laughs) Yeah, those darn kids. Yeah. I guess that was kind of like the first audience participation film, I suppose. Before we started recording, you had indicated that you'd actually driven by the house that is in the movie which is the Ennis Brown house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1924. What was your experience with driving by and and actually seeing? Uh, It brought back memories. Honestly, my first thought was, it's in color. What the heck? It's supposed to be in black and white. (laughs) Yeah, I thought for a second just stopping and and seeing what would happen, but I chickened out. (laughs) That's one of those houses that really hasn't changed. I mean, from... from Not at all, no. Now, other than maintenance to maintain it, some of that is just the overall design. Frank Lloyd Wright was a master designer. A lot of his stuff that he did design has really stood the test of time. I've seen a lot of his houses that have gone up for sale simply because it's a Frank Lloyd Wright. Immediately doubles or triples. Oftentimes, the unique designs sometimes will take you back time period of which it was made and others because it was so unique at the time, are almost equally as unique now. And I just thought of this. This house is going to be 100 years old next year. Yeah. When you look at the house and how it looks so state-of-the-art, even by today's standards, it does not look like a house that is going to be 100 years old. And it doesn't look like a haunted house either. There was one question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think in terms of the movie? It's not their traditional haunted house, the gothic towers and and doors and shutters and any feelings if that impacts the movie in any one way or the other the interior does not match the exterior yes it it also the interior looks way bigger than the exterior it looks in some ways it looks like it would be i know there's probably a second floor but those interior (laughs) sets were definitely a second floor with very long staircases Maybe it was like the TARDIS. I mean, <laughs> you know, much bigger on the inside than the outside. Oh, no, a Doctor Who reference. Yes. Bless you, because I had no Doctor <laughs> Who references other than that. There we go. <laughs> the outside of the house is almost irrelevant. Once those doors swing open and the camera moves in, it's like we're entering the house ourselves, and it's a whole new world was, in there that does have the familiar haunted house trappings. And it was a daring <laughs> choice. It was for a haunted house. It's, and I'd have tried to think if they show the house again, maybe they do a couple times with thunder and lightning behind it. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, there's a couple scenes. I think there's one in the middle and one at the end. The decorating, they they said that I don't know how prevalent spider webs <laughs> are, but they made it sound like it's something that normally occurs. Like I don't think so. 
I tell you, there's one thing in the house that matches the outside, and that's the acid pit. I mean, you don't really. Oh, true. Yeah. Goes with that boxy frame, you know. Yeah. The brickwork in the basement looks as close to the exterior as any place in the entire place. Yeah, that acid pit is a hazard, too. I mean, they were, they were standing <laughs> really close to that, and it was splashing, and it's like, what? Nora, I guess, is standing on the edge, and I know I get that way sometimes if I'm high in a building looking out the window, I'll feel like I'm sort of wobbling, but she almost falls in just like for no reason, just by standing there staring into it. That would have been a bad accident. What do you think if they would not have done the exterior, if they would have done something different? Old dark house, right, that everybody was going to. What part does the the exterior play on the overall film? It definitely makes you feel uneasy, the unfamiliarity of the whole situation. If you look at the poster, I'm, I'm, which I'm sure was done, you know, the Reynolds Brown poster for the film, that house is not depicted. It is a traditional old dark house. I'm not sure how that would have worked on the poster itself if they if they'd chosen that image to depict. I don't think it would have worked. Something I just thought of, I do know at the beginning you're kind of scanning along the outside a little bit closer up, and I noticed the bars on the windows, and I just thought, well, that's a plot point they want to show that people can't get out. But I just now thought that kind of makes it seem like a prison, and they are trapped in there. See, that was my point. I think that kind of works for it. See, I don't think you could have done the, you know, when you think about, okay, going into a traditional house, how would they have managed for all the doors and all the windows to be shut so that you'd be trapped in there? There'd have to be some way out. It was with an old house, even if it was crashing through the old wall or whatever to get out. I think that's where the fact that this is almost like a tomb, right? Because it is a newer house that's been specially designed that's where I think the the choice of house comes into play because, granted, the interior, you're thinking you're in an old dark house the whole time. But in order to lock them in and and to entomb them, you know, until the next morning, I think that wouldn't have worked with, with a traditional old house. that It only worked with a modern setting. But I think if they would have chosen modern settings for the interior, the creepy factor would have been lost a little bit at least by 1959 standards. Yeah, I agree. When it comes to the cast, such an uh, amazing, eclectic mix of of characters, Vincent Price heading up the cast, doing what he does so well. But what about some of the other other characters? His wife, Annabelle, or you've got the character played by Richard Long, Lance Schroeder. What, What do you guys think about quirkiness that they each bring to the table? I think they work you know, as themselves. None of them really stood out, honestly. Robert Mitchum's sister is in there as well. She's the one that gets the drops of blood on the hand. The freaky part of the uh, secondary cast is the caretaker and his wife, which still, it makes no sense, but uh, (laughs) they serve a purpose. What's her name? The one that constantly screams. I can't think of the character's name. She has the- I think that's that same one, Nora. Nora, yeah. Is it Nora? She has the exact scream every time she screams. <laughs> she nails it. That's the same. She's consistent. Yeah, definitely with it. They're not like flamboyant. None of the characters are really overly flamboyant, with the one exception being Watson Pritchard, who is the guy that's been there before. If this was an 80s slasher film, he'd be the old man coming up to him before they go out to the <laughs> woods. You're, you're all going to die. <laughs> 
Because he's just a ray of sunshine, right? I mean, the whole time, this house is full of death. It's it's taken, you know, seven people. It's going to take seven more. And he's never cheerful and never hopeful at any point. He's the quirky one of the bunch. And I, you got to give that up to Elijah Cook, who I don't think I've ever seen him in a role where he's not the quirky cast. Character. Yeah, I just watched the Night Stalker, the 72 yeah. He's, he has a very small part, but it's very memorable. Yeah, those big eyes and his floating <laughs> head at the beginning. He's perfect for that part. Oh, yeah. I liked how the characters were introduced, and I agree with Frederick that they're kind of nondescript. I love the way Vincent Price describes them. Each one has a sort of pattern, like there's the pilot. It's the background the, is quirky, yeah. You know, and, but, but that doesn't make any one of them stand out. And the thing that's in common is they all need money. You know, it doesn't really matter where they come from, what they are. It's they are all in common. They are all the same. They all, for whatever reason, need money. You know, when the doors get locked, they're all on a level playing field. They all have these unique, quirky backgrounds, one degree or another. But they themselves all of a sudden lose their unique personality. And now they've just become equal to each other in this environment. I do have a favorite. Frederick mentioned Julie Mitchum, who plays Ruth Bridges. She doesn't have the most substantial part, but she's just sort of always there. And the one scene where she's like, well, if I win, when do I get the money? <laughs> I don't know. I just like what we see of her character. And she's just kind of always in the background. And I know she's not the drunk of the story, but I imagine a cocktail in her hand the entire time. Oh, yes. It's funny when she's sitting there at one point, she looks at the men of the group like, well, is anyone going to make me a cocktail? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing that's going to scare her. I mean, she's got ice in her veins. She's Betty Davis that money. Very Betty Davis-like in her prime. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when the blood's dripping down in her hand, someone else would have screamed. I mean, I <laughs> she looks startled. As anyone would, but yeah, she doesn't have the freak out moment. Nora would have possibly fainted if that would have been her in that situation. We've talked about William Castle on the show before, I guess it was just back in the spring, but seems like it's been a lifetime ago now. This was kind of like right at the start of his prime. Thinking about some of the other films that, that he eventually would do, and even some that he did before this, where does this rank for both of you guys? I'd say it was the best. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I agree. Macabre came before this, correct? There's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hit his high point with his second film. A lot going for this film. It's it's it's, uh, it's just perfect. I felt like yeah, that this was the movie that he was kind of chasing the rest of his career almost. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, the Tingler, I think, what came next, which was also from a gimmick perspective, pretty memorable. And I think following that. The gimmicks he was always trying to to top straight jacket. How, how do you top the buzzing seats and emerge? Thirteen Ghosts, I think, came close as far as a gimmick with the ghost viewer. Yes, but then I think following that, he reached a point where he eventually quit doing the gimmicks. Can promote a film on a gimmick, but it's only going to take you so far. You got to have a film behind it, and I think that's where he started to struggle a little bit. I'm surprised, Richard, this is your favorite because I know you've seen Shanks and you're very fond of that. Oh, God. <laughs> have you seen that, Frederick? Have you seen? Yes, I have. I, I saw that at the theater in, what, 1972 or whatever it was. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, 
Well, I can compare that to uh, in sheer badness with his remake of Old Dark House. I'm shocked he even had anything to do with that movie. It's ridiculous. I know it's different. You really can't compare, but I, I enjoy it. It's nowhere near close to the right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've still yet to see Bug, which is the movie he did after Shanks. Now, he just produced it. He didn't direct it. I know that there's elements of William Castle in that film, but that was pretty much at that point he was out of the cycle. I know that we talked about when we did Rosemary's Baby back in July, which is another movie that starred Elijah Cook. We've kind of been talking a lot about his films because he was also in The Haunted Palace did you know he was also in Star Trek, the court martial episode? Yeah, uh, I heard that somewhere. You've heard it some multiple times. And once again, Mr. Cook gives me my Star Trek reference for the episode. Thank <laughs> you, Rosemary's Baby would have been the movie that, that William Castle could have, maybe should have done. I'm just going to do a little sidetrack here. But what are your thoughts on, how do you think William Castle, would he have been able to pull that movie off? Would he have been able to do something with it? Or if he would have had his hands in it, would it have been... A disaster. Well, one thing's for certain, you would have seen the baby. <laughs> yes. And it may have been, may or may not have been gliding across the room. <laughs> 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 I want to do a series of posters of what if type situations. What if he, William yeah. Castle had directed it and what that poster would have looked like, you know, and hopefully incorporate some of the images that I'm sure would have been there. Yeah. I thought about that. You know, Rosemary's Baby is a pretty subdued movie poster. William Castle, I don't think, would have had that same style. It would have been, oh. like you said, <laughs> I have a feeling that the baby somehow would have been a part of that poster. And and maybe Vincent Price would have played Mr. Castavetes or Castavetes. Uh, now, see, you do that. And then now <laughs> all of a sudden my interest has peaked a little bit. It's like, well, you, you know, Vincent Price playing... The Charming, and then all of a sudden, the evil Vincent Price. Vincent Price and Ruth Gordon in the same movie, though. (laughs) That would have been great. (laughs) You reminded me with the sliding comment you made, and then earlier you talked about it not making any sense. That's all just irrelevant in this movie, because if you stop to think, it doesn't make sense. Like, how did the things happen? And I so I don't even like to think about it. But I did read one theory that because of the the different things that happened, and some you can point out, oh yeah, this is when he did that, and this is how they did that. Some things you can't explain, so maybe there is actually some ghostly activity going on for some of the events. It, it would seem so. It would explain a, a few things. Yeah. Just the fact that when you first see the skeleton in the basement, those wires are black, and they're very, very small. They're like fishing line. And then the very next scene, you see him with the marionette device, they're like ropes, and they're white, and they're very plain. You can see that. <laughs> that was a pretty interesting little harness device that he had that he was just sitting there cranking. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not sure how that would have worked, but I want oh, one. Oh. Yes. The opening, the scream that we see, you know, that kind of kicks off the film. I found an interesting little thing that apparently this was so effective that this spearheaded the start of novelty Halloween records and the sound effects records. Very early on, you know, the spooky sounds and sound effects and music that would end up being used most commonly for Halloween back in the 60s and 70s, especially, and makeshift haunted house attractions that use those records. 
being a a comic book reader, there's one of those ads that I always wondered about that advertised the haunted house record. Send off for a dollar or whatever it was and, and get your free haunted house record. And I thought, you know, those gimmicks that you see, do they really exist? Did anybody actually buy them? And so I'm sitting there reading this comic and I had to stop. So I started Googling and stuff. That record exists. It's out there and it's for sale on eBay. Somebody had a copy of it. It was a full-fledged record that she got for a dollar. As a kid, I, I had one of those records. It's called Halloween Horrors. And I purged it, but I have since reacquired it on record. And it's got a story on the side one and then sound effects on side two. And it's got some of the most amazing artwork on the album. The Disney one, I know, is another one that a lot of people had. Did you guys enjoy those cheap novelty records back in the day? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Once again, that was some of my earliest memories is those sound effects with occasional music thrown in. Yeah, they were magical as far as I'm concerned. When I watched this, I hadn't read that little note first and I had forgotten if I ever knew it, but it started out with the dark black and the laughing and the chains rattling and all that. And I said, oh, this reminds me of that chilling, thrilling sounds of Haunted House that Disney put out. Then to read that, what you just said, Richard, is like, oh, yeah, it makes interesting. Sense. I have a memory of the Halloween Horrors record because it's it got a cool story on the first side, you know, and of course the special effects, the sound effects that they use on side A, you end up hearing again on side B, but isolated. And there's one of a ghost moaning that I remember playing that record at a moment that my dad was just walking by and he's like, you know, listening to it. And he just starts laughing and he says, yeah, it sounds like that guy's really got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and so all these years later, my, you know, my dad sometimes was, he was so serious. And then he would just throw out something like that, that sticks with me all these years later. And so when I got this record a few years ago and was listening to it and it came up to that sound, the ghost moaning, and it does, I just start laughed out loud. I was like, yep, dad was right. That's just like, <laughs> poor guy is suffering there, <laughs> suffering ghost. <laughs> there was a remake in 1999 and then it had a sequel in 2007 I know the, the remake loosely based on the original and then the sequel goes in whole different directions. And I have say I have not seen either of them. Did either of you guys see the remake and what are your thoughts? How does it compare? Does it compare to this original? No. <laughs> I saw the uh, the remake, but did not see the sequel to the remake, which kind of tells you what I thought of the remake. It's not good. And the fact that they had the calling... Vincent, the, the main character Vincent, rather than uh, Frederick Lauren, which was, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> it was a pale imitation as far as I'm concerned. I saw it. I thought it was a decent movie. I can't compare. I sort of like when they've remade some of those movies. I know they did that with a handful of Corman movies. I kind of like them for what they are, but yeah, it doesn't really compare. I do remember more than this, the remake of 13 Ghosts. Yes. I don't know that it was any better, but it just, it stands out more for some reason. And then this is really pitiful and you can tell me to get off the podcast right now, but I kind of like the House of Wax remake. <laughs> I've never seen that one. I've never seen that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> is, that one, is that the one with, with Paris Hilton? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's oh, what oh, keeps me God. away from it. <laughs> <laughs> 
coming up in episode 90, Rich goes solo. But I would <laughs> never have any interest at all of watching the sequel to the remake. Sometimes the remakes can be fine. They can do the right homage or whatever. Sometimes they're just cashing in on the name. I've never seen the Fog remake, but I, I did not hear anything good about that because it does get compared to the original. Well, no, the original is Judge John Carpenter's, you know, hand is all over that. Yeah. And it's missing from the remake. And so therefore, automatically, the remake is missing. So sometimes I'm thinking it'd almost be better off. You're hindering yourself if you take a classic title and decide to do a remake. And you can do Frankenstein or or Dracula and you can do your own take on it. But you're immediately being compared. Sometimes it's better off to leave the classics alone and come up with an original story. Or if you've You've taken the film in an entirely different direction. I don't know, maybe use a different title so that it just separates it even more so from the original. In the credits, there's the theme song to House on Haunted Hill. Did you have any notes on this, Rich? I know that the music was by Vaughn Dexter, who did do some other work with William Castle. He did work on The Tingler and 13 Ghosts and Mr. Sardonicus. Beyond that, I didn't have anything. Do you have something? Yeah, well, apparently there were lyrics. It was a song. It was like a theme, but they decided just to play the orchestral part. And I won't read it now, but if you look on the internet, you can find the words to the song that we would have heard had they used it. I don't know who sang it. I'm so glad they didn't include it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was a thing in some 1950s movies, right? Which is probably why they were tempted to do that. Yeah, the blob. The blob. (laughs) Yeah. I think with some movies, it works. If you're doing like a teenage horror film or whatever, you know, you're, you're, that's your audience, then do something peppy, do something like, I don't know that that was the audience they were going for for this one. I think if they would have chosen that, that would have been, it would have been an ill-fated decision, I think. Sometimes keeping an orchestral score is the best way to go, much like Star Trek, the motion picture. The Ilias theme actually has lyrics to it and was originally recorded by Sean Cassidy. What? <laughs> yeah, seek it out. It's out on YouTube. As a song, you think if you just remove the Star Trek thing from it, it's like, okay, it sounds like a kind of cheesy late 70s pseudo disco era song. Fine for what it is. But then my imagining of taking Sean Cassidy and emerging him into the Star Trek universe, into that film, and that film's got some problems. That would have been next level issues if here comes. <laughs> You know, ball-headed Ilea, and then we get Sean Cassidy breaking out in a tune. I don't know if it would have helped. Maybe it would have. I don't dislike that movie as much as others, but I'm thankful that they didn't include that in there. So sometimes leaving the lyrics at home is the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah, songs can ruin a movie, actually. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> uh, Less for a Vampire, that song right in the middle of it, Strange Love right in the middle of it, it's like, ah, where did that come from? <laughs> I want to go through the cast. And just kind of get your thoughts on it. Of course, Vincent Price, not going to go through what he did. But as I've done with some of these other big stars, I thought it'd be interesting to see what Vincent Price was doing in 1959 to kind of put it in context with where his career was at. He was really on the verge of hitting his stride. In 1959, he also does The Big Circus, which he's part of an ensemble cast there. He also did Return of the Fly. He did The Tingler, The Bat. So a couple of big films that fell into his iconic wheelhouse. And The Bat's also another public domain film, which I think is kind of interesting that that two in the same year. 
And then also he did an episode of Riverboat, which starred Darren McGavin, kind of circling back to the Night Stalker thing. I thought that was interesting. Vincent Price was always one of those busy guys. And if he wasn't filming something, he was doing his art or his love for food. Vincent never really sat on his laurels. Carol Omart as his wife, Annabelle Lauren. A couple of interesting credits for her. She was also in Spider Baby, which was released in 67. Lots of TV work, but she also did a movie. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, not covered it properly, but talked about it. The Specter of Edgar Allan Poe from 1974. It's one of those films that nobody ever talks about, but sounds interesting. And maybe there's a reason why nobody talks about it. Richard Long played Lance Schroeder, most well-known for 112 episodes of The Big Valley, where he played Jared Barkley. I grew up on The Big Valley in the 70s and continue to watch those episodes from time to time. I love that show. And I just want to add also, I'll always add this in conversation, Nanny and the Professor. Yes, Nanny and the Professor, Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock, Thriller, also Cult of the Cobra, which I always forget he's in that movie. He died at a very young age, 1974, at the age of 47 of a heart attack. Alan Marshall played Dr. David Trent. Pretty extensive and interesting bit of research here. So he goes as far back as After the Thin Man uh, in the 1930s, which I love the Thin Man series. He was also in the 1939 version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1939. He also did TV work on Lights Out and Alfred Hitchcock. He died shortly after this film. He died in 1962 at the age of 52 of a heart attack on stage with Mae West in a play called Sextet. That was later made into a film in 1977 starring a much older Mae West and a younger Timothy Dalton playing the same role. The character was kind of like Mae West's lover in the movie, That's a movie I have often heard about and have never seen, and I admit I want to see it because it just sounds like a train wreck of all train wrecks. (laughs) Because aside from Mae West and Timothy Dalton, the cast includes Dom DeLuise, Ringo Starr, Alice Cooper, Tony Curtis, and George Hamilton. Sounds like a Hollywood Squares episode. It does. It does. Where's Paul Lynn when you need him? I know. (laughs) We have Carolyn Craig played Nora Manning, mostly TV work. I didn't really see anything outstanding from her aside from this film. We talked about Elijah Cook as Watson Pritchard. mentioned Julie Mitchum, who played Ruth Bridges. Only eight credits for Julie Mitchum, so she didn't do a lot of work. Might have done some stage work. Leona Anderson plays Mrs. Slides, the old woman who is featured prominently. Only 10 credits. This was her last film, Actually, not because of death. She would die in 1973 at the age of 88. Doing a little bit of math, she would have been in her 70s at the time this film was made. I'm guessing maybe makeup or maybe she just looked that way. (laughs) People (laughs) aged differently back then. And she had the ability to slide across the floor effortlessly. (laughs) I didn't know her name, her character name was Mrs. Slides until just now. (laughs) I know, I didn't either. And then I saw that and I was like, okay, that had to be a pun or something. Leave it to William. But no, she wasn't sliding. She was floating. This this is true. (laughs) This is true. The only other little thing I have on this one is the fact that this is Elvira's favorite movie. 
Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Vira, has a big love for Vincent Price. And this particular film is one of her all-time favorites, if not her favorite, depending on the source. When she did her little pseudo-revival last year, the year before on Shudder, she did an evening of films. House on Haunted Hill was one of the films that she chose. That is not on Shudder right now. I don't know if any of her episodes were. Maybe it was a rights issue with the special. I don't know. Her second movie is based on the title, actually. Yes. There was Haunted Hills, which is a very similar title. Exactly. And another shout out to Sam Urban, director. I was going to, you beat it. <laughs> yeah, got to give out a shout out to Sam Urban for that. And I'm sure that his love for the old movies and, and his uh, strong friendship with Cassandra all kind of played a part in that. Any other thoughts you guys wanted to share on The House of Haunted Hill? I wanted to quickly comment on the twist, one that will be common in the future William Castle movies with somebody scheming and setting up this plot. So we have that here, but we sort of have a double twist. And I wonder if the second twist ever took anyone by surprise. Maybe audiences who saw it the first time and think that Vincent Price got shot and is dead. She was walking around. I forget the character's name. The one that screamed all the time. She had a gun, but she never used it. She even got a really close look at Vincent Price, too. And she's still shouting. It's like, ah, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're relying on coincidence a lot that they expect her to shoot him in the right place yeah. at the right time. And I still don't know how they did the one scene that takes place on the outside, and it shows the hanged wife, and the rope is coming in by itself. It's like, I don't. I'm not sure if I believe that was a uh, sideshow trick or whatever. It's hard to believe. It was very well done, though. That was a tougher one to imagine how that would have been pulled off. Our guest gets the last word. Last word. Watch it. It's a great film. I've seen it so many times, it's kind of hard to look at it with fresh eyes each time. I try to, but it's really difficult. And it's William Castle's best film, is no doubt. <laughs> you know, he had a, a really good team working on it as well uh, you know the art direction is this fantastic Every, everything works to a t i cannot imagine anyone else in the vincent price role there's nobody like vincent <laughs> house and haunted hill is a recommendation yes absolutely beware the colorized version that, oh, is, God. that is available and it's horrendous as we wrap up here frederick why don't you let people know is there a site that they can go to or yes, someone yes. they can seek out to add to your artwork? FrederickCooperArts.com. We have original art, prints, posters, everything there. We're having a big October sale starting soon, and it'll run probably through mid-November. Lots of new material. Are you working on anything now that you're excited about or that we can look uh, forward to? I'm working on in a capacity that I cannot speak of right now on a uh, Vincent Price documentary for Wicked Visions. Hopefully some announcements will be made soon on that. Thanks for joining us today and bringing this movie. It was good to finally talk about yes, it and appreciate absolutely. your participation. Yes. Richard, yes. I'm so used to saying, tell us what we're going to do next week, but this is it. Our Halloween month is over. But we do have an episode coming up probably in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I guess so. What's happening for our November episode then? Coming up in episode 90, we are going to have Nashi November part two. We are revisiting a couple of Paul Nashi films or visiting for the first time here on the show. 
Werewolf versus Vampire Woman, the 1971, I would say classic, one of the more well-known Paul Nashy films out there. It's one of the public domain films, so previously it's only been available in the English dubbed version and kind of a poor print. Thankfully, Vinegar Syndrome has released and remastered, and it is now available in its original Spanish language with English subtitles. I have yet to see it as we speak. I have acquired the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, which you can get for roughly about $35, which actually is a really good price because it's got several extras and special features, including the complete documentary, The Man Who Saw Frankenstein Cry, Paul Nashie, The Life and Legend of a Horror Icon. This is from 2010. It features Mick Garris. I've had an opportunity to see that documentary, and it really is a great gateway into Paul Nashie. If if you're interested, that'd be a great film to start off with. The other film we're covering is Inquisition from 1976. This is only available on Blu-ray from Mondo Macabro. You can get it for less than $20. That'll be a first-time viewing for me on that one, so I'm looking forward to that. And even though we are done with our five consecutive weeks of guests, we do have a guest next month. We've got Stephen D. Sullivan, award-winning author, going to be joining us. He's a Paul Nashy fan. He's got some interesting things he's working on that are possibly Nashy related. He's going to be joining us for one of the films. Cannot wait. Thank you, everybody, for listening and celebrating Halloween with us. Enjoy your day tomorrow. Be safe. Make smart decisions. Get lots of candy. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. Bye-bye. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon. And remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Happy Halloween, Halloween. Super Shambhala.